The doors are closing. Train departing. Please hold on. It's supposed to be the most boring part of your day, part of the routine. Nothing's supposed to happen on the train. Doors to my right. But on May 26, 2017, Portlanders learned that safety was an illusion, and some of them decided they couldn't risk believing in illusions anymore, including the liberal vision of Portland as Portlandia. So in the months after the murders, as the city appeared to come together against hate, it was really starting to fracture, perhaps more profoundly than ever before. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Otherhood. It was a Friday, and it was sunny and warm, one of the days people talk about how glad they are to live in Portland. I mean, no one could have seen that coming, that it escalated that quickly, and that severely was a shock. Chloe Udaly was at work in City Hall. She'd only been a Portland commissioner for five months. What happened that day, um, I think I heard about the events in the afternoon. She got the news that something had happened on the other side of town. Someone had died. Udaly posted about it on social media and left for the day. Honestly, I was out with a friend just kind of decompressing after work when my phone started ringing and, you know, from her little convertible at Cathedral Park, I was talking to people on two different phones. and People were um, calling her because what Udaly hadn't realized was that she was responsible for the whole city that day. The mayor was on a flight to London, so that meant the chair of the city commission was in charge, and that was Udaly. I thought that'd mean Udaly'd have a lot to say. I had asked the city for one person to talk to, commissioner or mayor. They gave me Udaly, who's white, an independent bookseller, and one of the rare commissioners from a more diverse area of the city. She'd run on a key issue for communities of color in Portland, the high cost of housing. But... I was surprised at how distant that day seemed to her. It honestly feels like eons ago. In the hours after the murders, she and her staff crafted the city's first statements of condolences, urging everyone to come together against hate. Udaly attended vigils she remembers as moving. I think the majority of the you know white residents here have been kind of blissfully unaware of how hostile the city can be to people of color. Progressiveness coupled with a lack of diversity is one of our problems. In the days after the murders, people of color flooded their mosques, churches, and community organizations with phone calls reporting incidents big and tiny to help those groups cope with the influx and to document incidents from then on out. City commissioners allocated $350,000 in grants That was less than the $2 million the groups had asked for, and just a one-time amount. Have we done enough? Absolutely not. But have we made progress in the right direction? Yes. I mean, we are having conversations now about our city that were not happening on any kind of large scale 15, 20, 30 years ago. Our interview was in a basement room of City Hall, and we had an audience three members of Udaly's staff who are women of color. One of them lingered when Udaly said she had to leave, Michelle Rodriguez of the city's Office of Neighborhood Involvement. 
Rodriguez is from California and her family's from Portugal. Our city councilors have a lot of power until we get, in my opinion, and this is not the opinion of the city of Portland, my official disclaimer, my opinion is until we get people of color in those positions, it's just not going to change and it's not going to change quick enough. As a reporter, this was an extraordinary thing to hear from someone who works in city government. And frankly, I worry keeping this in here will get Michelle Rodriguez in trouble. But she had a reason for saying what she was saying. The details are super wonky and would probably bore most people. But here they are, boiled down. Portland is the last big city in America with a commission form of government. That means there's no city administrator with a city council to answer to. Four commissioners and the mayor directly run city departments, like they hire and fire people with less oversight than many governments. Udaily and other commissioners don't have term limits, and they're elected at large. Most of them have come from a few affluent neighborhoods. By some counts, there have only been two commissioners of color in Portland's history. People who fundamentally don't understand the power dynamic and the power structure of the city of Portland will not understand how the institution gets changed. And there are many folks, especially people of color, who come here and don't understand how much power resides in City Hall in Portland compared to, say, L.A. or compared to San Francisco. And they got that power from something that's really hard to change, the structure of government, a structure put in place in the 1910s when, yeah, voters didn't think it was as important to make sure poor, diverse areas were represented. Rodriguez thought that was important context I, and you, should have. And I'm keeping it in because I came to agree. A week after the light rail murders, there was a so-called free speech march in Portland. And just a quick note, I'm going to call them free speech marchers in this episode because I don't know what else to call them. Lots of people say the marchers are white supremacists, but I don't know that they are. Anyway, on that day, a week after the murders, the free speech marchers were in a park, and there was a counter event across the street in front of City Hall. Casey Jama was at the podium. He's the head of the nonprofit organizing group Unite Oregon. As I was speaking at the podium, I looked at it and I looked at it and I, it just, picture came to my mind. It's like, oh my goodness. Because what happened, what immediately I saw was that the law enforcement holding their clubs facing us and the white supremacists were in their backs. So I asked my, a question for myself, who are they protecting and who do they see as the problem? Jama soon realized there could be lots of reasons officers were standing that way. The moment was more about him discovering his own deep distrust for police and government. Now, part of that comes from growing up in Somalia, and part of it's much more recent. After Jama's group joined the ACLU in suing the Trump administration over the first so-called Muslim ban, people picketed outside Jama's offices and plastered the windows with anti-Muslim pamphlets. Still, even though it might make him more of a target, Jama's running for state senate later this year because, he says, people in government can't continue pretending that they're doing what it takes to combat violence toward people of color. In Oregon, everybody will say the right things, but yet when the real actions come, they actually either don't do the wrong things or opposite things, or they don't do a lot. That day, Jama spoke at the podium. Anti-hate protesters were out in force. 
Portland had been a battleground since the election. Anti-hate protesters had been confronting free speech demonstrators in clashes that sometimes got ugly and bitter and violent. And the protesters got flack for the destruction and for the way they presented themselves. Anti-hate folks sometimes covered the bottom of their faces with a bandana with a skull on it, so they looked like walking skeletons. And it could look pretty scary. Lots of people criticized them for that. But after the light rail murders, the protesters' measures seemed in a way vindicated. It's scary times, and I think doing nothing is even more scary. Gregory McKelvey is a 24-year-old political consultant about to finish his law degree. He's black and leads the protest group PDX Resistance. Our papers call us the most prominent protest group in Portland, which I'm kind of proud of, but um, (laughs) no disrespect to the other protest groups. McKelvey portrays city streets as the battlefronts of a potential civil war. He says white supremacists are testing their boundaries and can't be dismissed because they're dangerous. And people on the sidelines are watching, McKelvey says. They're choosing sides. And they need to see people push back against free speech marchers, even if sometimes it results in violence. It's all delicate. You know, I I have to say and do say that I, I don't condone violence against people or property. But, I, you know, I think that it's a shame that we have a lot of people in Portland that maybe are more upset about broken windows than the people that are forced to sleep outside next to the shattered glass. I was one of those kids when I was 18, too. I was rioting in the streets because I thought that's how you got changed. So I totally know where they're coming from, but I also know a lot of that is counterproductive. When you're throwing rocks at cops, it doesn't solve any problem. It creates more problems, and it feeds the alt-right narrative, and they use it. Fox News uses it. Richard Spencer uses it as evidence of the oppressive liberal backlash against their free speech rights. That's Randy Blazak of the Oregon Coalition Against Hate Crime, who's white and is a criminologist who works with police and community groups. He says criticizing protesters hasn't made him popular. I sometimes I feel like I get more flack from my from my comrades because I work with the police. So then I become the bad guy because I'm somehow in bed with the enemy. And there's a lot of people who I consider to be my allies in the struggle who just absolutely hate me. And they, one of them accused me of clutching my liberal pearls, which I'm not even sure what that means. And it's sometimes frustrating because you just want to sort of say, hey, remember what we're trying to do here. Blazak's faction of Portland's activists has split from others who think the free speech marchers are much more of a threat. Gregory McKelvey, the protest leader, sees the marchers as people who could potentially commit violent assaults. But Blazak disagrees with an oppositional approach. He says white supremacists are often radicalized in prison, and he portrays them as misunderstood and misguided. So it's not really a unified movement as much as what I like to think of as a bunch of knuckleheads. I just, I've worked in this field long enough to know that inside every white supremacist jerkwad is an anti-racist waiting to come out. Not, maybe not everyone, because there's a few sociopaths in the mix. Some of them just need a little bit of TLC, instead of punching a Nazi, maybe hug hug them a little bit, not too close. Police, for their part, say they've reined in free speech marchers as much as they can. The department spokesman, Sergeant Chris Burley, who's white, says officers have to uphold laws, even ones that protect people saying hateful racist things on Portland streets. As law enforcement officials, we might find the, the words offensive, but so much of the time what people say is protected by the First Amendment. 
Even in cases where officers can't do anything, like when someone yells something nasty and it doesn't fit the specific definition of a crime, Burley says police are trying to convey to victims that they still care. As officers, every meeting that we have is an opportunity to understand the perceptions of the community, to understand what the experience is after this horrific incident that happened on the MAX train. But Burley acknowledged there was still an immense trust gap. I've never heard a police spokesman say something like this. We want to be an agency that is trusted, that has legitimacy, that they'll trust that we'll react to to what they're telling us, and that we are receptive to the concerns of the community. You know, we must be aware of the, the perception that people have about the legitimacy of the police bureau. The police bureau is learning about how we are perceived. The mayor recently tried to make sure the police bureau sends a message of inclusivity. He put a new police chief in place. Her name, no kidding, is Danielle Outlaw, and she started in October. She's the first black woman to lead the department. We asked Chief Outlaw if there are problems with how Portland police officers treat protesters and people of color. Here's what she told us. It's still too early to say whether or not it's a a, a problem as opposed to, is there something that we do well or maybe we need to improve it? I want to take a look at how we train, and then I'm going to take a very critical look at how we've done things in the past. As it happens, the president of the Portland Police Union is also black, and I talked to him too because I'd read about something he'd said when the mayor first advertised for a new police chief. City Hall wrote a job description that said the right candidate would be able to address Portland's history of legally enforced systemic racism. And the police union president, Daryl Turner, he said he was offended. He said the mayor had angered and frustrated rank-and-file officers by disregarding decades of progress. I asked Turner about that, and he gave me these complex answers that showed how carefully he was walking a line. You have to remember the past, but you also don't dwell on it. You move to the future. And although we have wounds that we need to heal, we need to heal those wounds and move forward to fight them with togetherness and partnerships. So what should he have said? I think probably that he wanted somebody who could be part of an evolving and diverse community uh, that wanted to help build on a future and not dwell on a past, although we have learned lessons from the past. Do you think we've acknowledged what happened in the past? I think there's always going to be some resistance to totally acknowledge, but that will be from people who don't want to uh, be part of the, the movement to, to move forward. I think it's, it's, it's very tough right now for everybody in this country. We have seen uh, an onslaught of anti-police rhetoric and of, 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 of police hate that we have never seen before. Turner was clear about one thing. Lawmakers were also to blame for the public distrust. Politicians need to be held accountable, too. Our elected officials are one who are able to avail the job training, the educational training, the socioeconomical help. And we see those programs cut for uh, other, other programs that are pet projects of uh, politicians who want to get elected and who want to pander to the people that have enough money to help them get elected. And that takes us back to the beginning, to Chloe Udaly, the city commissioner. Because when we talked... She acknowledged tension with police, too, in a direct way I'd never heard an elected leader use before. The police bureau is a really tough nut to crack. Past councils have given away a lot of power. We have a very powerful police union. Although I 
appreciate the work the police do. I think it's important for me to convey that I'm frustrated by certain issues we're facing with our bureau and how hard it seems to make real change. But that's what Portlanders of color are judging elected leaders on, real change. Because words alone don't seem like enough to build trust anymore. I came to that conclusion on one of my last days in Portland, another warm, sunny, beautiful day, five months after the light rail murders. I was in a city park for what was being called an equity rally. There was a small, diverse group of people gathered, and it was like a reunion. Everyone knew each other. One by one, elected leaders, all who happened to be white, took the stage and pledged earnestly to address entrenched issues of racism. The head of the Metro Council. We, the elected leaders of the region, stand today side by side with community leaders to tell those who are marginalized and demonized and treated as the other that there is no other. The chair of the local county board. We had a very painful and emotional and raw board meeting. We heard from employees and community how racism and oppression show up in our workplace. And we voted to pass the first workforce equity resolution in our county's history. And the mayor. All of us who call this country home feel a responsibility to condemn racism, intolerance, hatred, the goal of all of which are to divide and to oppress. Then the organizers went off script. At this time, I'd like to invite to the stage Reverend Joseph Santos Lyons, from Apano. We're very lucky to have him today uh, to say a few words. Apano is the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon. Santos Lyons and I had had lunch earlier that day. He told me about growing up Chinese American in Portland, like going to suburban football games and getting chased and hit by random bullies. Those experiences led Santos Lyons to activism. And he still has this weird, irrational feeling of guilt about the light rail murders. Because a month before the murders, Santos Lyons had seen the murderer, Jeremy Christian, at one of the free speech marches. Christian was yelling crazy racist things, drawing a lot of attention. And Santos Lyons still says he should have known when he saw Christian, like he should have done something. That guilt makes Santos Lyons feel like he has to be more vigilant now. So up on stage, this is what he said. So good afternoon. I just wanted just to ask, who's tired right now? Yeah, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? So I feel like we've been in a lot of these rallies. You know, we're watching you. I'm actually not here to validate your event. We at Apano will do our best to be partners when we can, and sometimes we're going to disagree. But what I do appreciate is you make space for us at the table. I think that is a new tradition that we need to continue. Thank you. His message was clear. Elected leaders can say all the right things, but we want you to prove your words aren't illusions. Standing next to me at that rally was Wajdi Saeed, an immigrant from Yemen who came here for college. Now he's president of the Muslim Educational Trust, a school, mosque, and community center. After the murders on the light rail, he helped raise thousands of dollars for the victims. At the rally, Saeed seemed to know everybody, hamming it up in pictures with other older activists. For my last interview in Portland, I went to see Saeed and the Trust's compound. It's a few big, pretty white buildings surrounded by a low white wall. The Trust's media outreach person, Rani Ayoub, 
gave me a tour, walking me through the classrooms, the offices. They even have a pool. When the girls are in the pool, the boys are in the gym. And then we got to the prayer area, a place where more than 600 people came after the light rail murders, just to be together. Ayub told me it doubles as a gym for the kids. Do you mind if I ask about security, how you keep the kids safe? Sure, no worries. We have our uh, main entrance is always locked. Our doors are always locked. So that's how we keep it always safe, by having it always locked. And, and only people who are buzzed in can enter the, the, the center, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that door is usually... How did you get in? I just walked in. Oh, okay. was it open? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> dismissal time is usually. Did you? What did you, time did you come? Probably right after dismissal. Dismissal time is kind of open, but. This uh, is, okay. Yeah, but most. Of, yeah. This is when I began to realize how steeped I'd gotten in the urgency of some people of color in Portland. My focus on danger and safety seemed inappropriate at the trust. Reality is that we have to be positive. We cannot afford to be negative. Seriously. Saeed had asked another elder statesman of Portland immigrant communities to come to our interview. My full name is Ronald Atang Sayan Catalani. People call me Polo for short. My 8 to 5 job is as the city of Portland's immigrant integration policy guy. Polo Catalini's family was expelled from Indonesia for being mestizo. And he's very open about how he's gone around regular channels in order to get work done fast in Portland immigrant communities. Stuff like community gardens, mobile playgrounds, or just to get a street light installed. This is doing it instead of talking about it. Catalini and Saeed say this is how they've made progress, albeit person by person and slow. That seemed to be enough until the presidential election and until two men were murdered on the Portland light rail protecting two black women. Now people seem to be asking for so much change, all at once. But you're aware of this millennial generation that seems to be very impatient for change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're aware of them, and they're aware of us. (laughs) (laughs) But we have to keep the conversation, you know. know, We have to understand. And we're stubborn and we're slow. But they also don't seem to be able to understand, of course they cannot, that that plateau from which they are able to be this way is because we really suffered. Mm. I mean, <laughs> yikes, you know, and, and, and we never tell our children I'm suffering. You know. In a few minutes, though, Catalini reconsidered. About those millennials, I'm so proud of them because they've raised the level of expectation from our communities. Our level of expectation from white folks is fairly low. That is, we'll just take care of it, don't worry. Because we've never expected anything. So, okay, never mind, I'll fix that myself. You guys are you giving me a headache and a stomachache and a buttache. I will just get with my people and we'll fix this, never mind you. But now each next generation is expecting Americans to give more, to do more, to be more. And Catalini says, for this, they are grateful. The light rail murders changed Portlanders. It's as if it set them on different paths. So how does Portland move forward? Unetu Sugao's been thinking about that. He's a student from Ethiopia who came to Portland to do his PhD and work for the Urban League. He started hearing about another guy from Ethiopia, Mulugeta Sarah, who you can learn more about in the last episode if you haven't listened already. Like Sagao, Sarah came to Portland to do his PhD. And in 1988, when he was about the age Sagao is now, 
White skinheads beat Seurat to death. Their eerie similarities somehow made Segao feel especially vulnerable after the light rail murders. He stopped taking public transportation. How far have we really came over the past 30 years? Portland takes pride in being really progressive and embracing diversity and whatnot. But honestly, it's only in Portland that I was called inward. Segal went to see the place where Seurat died. It's a nondescript intersection in a quiet neighborhood. And there was nothing there. No plaque. Nothing to say what had happened and how much it meant to Portland communities of color. This November 13th, it'll be the 30th anniversary of Seurat's death. And by then, Segal hopes to convince the city commission to rename one of those neighborhood streets in Seurat's honor. How do you move forward without owning your past? Like, where do you start to move forward from? For me, honestly, you definitely have to start by owning what happened. So will Portland own what happened? And will that make a difference? That's it for this episode. Thank you to Blue Note Sessions for their music. And thank you for listening. Keep in touch. Find Otherhood on Facebook or me on Twitter and tell me what you want to hear. I'm at Rupa Shinoy. Do me a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood from PRI.